0: Well, good evening, everybody. Good evening. If you'd get a Bible out, open it up to Numbers chapter 32. Numbers, the 32nd chapter. We're going to begin there, read some verses in just a moment that I think will help well establish the thoughts of our study this evening. Numbers chapter 32. It is great to see everybody this evening as you're getting... Settled in, getting ready for this part of our worship. Let me just say how glad I am to get to be with you tonight and for the invitation to come and to participate in this series of special studies, talking about what I deem to be just a very serious topic. You know, I've been thinking about just that title, The Autopsy of a Dead Church. That's a chilling kind of title, it's a sobering kind of thought, and I hope it's putting some serious thoughts in your mind. I know that Brother Jay and Brother Adam have done excellent jobs for you already this week, and I may even kind of try trample over some of the things that they've said, because this all kind of just works together this week. And so uh, I hope you're ready this evening. I know that on a Saturday night, the fact that you would come and worship God and be ready to study from the Bible probably says that you're probably not somebody that maybe struggles a whole lot with apathy. That is the topic that has been assigned to me this evening. But you may be. I don't know. I don't know everybody here. Don't know your hearts. Don't know exactly how it is that you live your life. And so I'm going to preach this lesson this evening in such a way that I'm just going to push everybody. I'm going to challenge everybody. Not even You may think you're a five-star Christian this evening. I'm going to push you as well. Talk about some things that I hope will challenge us and help us to ratchet up our level of spirituality and our desire to serve Jesus the Christ. Brother Joe, are you hearing me all right? Good, good, because I didn't want to wear that headset. And they said, if if you can hear me, then everybody can hear me. So good, I'm ready to do without that headset tonight. Let's read Numbers, the 32nd chapter. Let's read beginning in verse number 1. This is the children of Israel. They're marching toward the promised land. And notice what the Bible says in Numbers 32, beginning in verse 1. Now the people of Reuben and the people of Gad had a very great number of livestock. And they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead. And behold, the place was a place for livestock. And so the people of Gad and the people of Reuben came and they said to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the chiefs of the congregation. Drop down to verse 5. I'm not going to try to read all those names in verse 3. Verse 5, they said, If we have found favor in your sight, Let this land be given to your servants for a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. It was the noted philosopher Edmund Burke who is credited with the statement, All that is necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. And I believe that is exactly what we see here in Numbers chapter 32 with the people of Gad and the people of Reuben. We see some good men doing nothing. The people of Gad and the people of Reuben, they came to Moses and they said, Yeah, uh, Moses, um, uh, could you just leave us here where we're at right now? Could you just leave us on this side of the Jordan River? You know, we're pretty tired of walking. It's been a long journey thus far. And you know what? This just, this just looks like pretty good farmland here for all of our livestock and all of our animals. And so if it's all the same to you, we'll just, we'll just stay right here. But you know what? Good luck to the rest of you guys in your march toward the promised land. We wish you nothing but the best as you go and clear out the land of Canaan. How do you think that went over with Moses? Look at the very next verse, verse 6. But Moses said to the people of Gad and to the people of Reuben, Shall your brothers go to war while you sit here? Why will you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land that the Lord has given to them? Moses is fired up, isn't he? What do you mean you're going to just stay right here? You can't just sit here and do nothing. You can't just bail out on your brethren, leave them high and dry. We've got a job to do, a job from God Himself. You need to roll up your sleeves and get across the Jordan River so that we can do God's work. And you know what? It's really not all that hard to sympathize with Moses here. I think I'd be pretty fired up as well. You know who these guys think they are? Ditching their brethren, leaving us with all the hard work of clearing out the land of Canaan. That ain't right. You boys from Gad you boys from Reuben, you need to pack your stuff, roll up your sleeves, and join the rest of us so that we can do God's work together. And I think it is safe to say this evening that the attitude displayed by the people of Gad and the people of Reuben in Numbers chapter 32, that attitude did not die in Numbers 32. I believe in many ways that spirit continues even today even within the lord's church let me explain to you what i mean by that in every congregation of every size you have people who are you have people who are visiting these are the people who are kind of outside on the fringe if you will these are the people they don't they don't know everybody They don't know exactly what's going on all the time. They're kind of trying to just feel their way around and get a feel for what's going on here. They're just trying to get things figured out. And if you're here this evening and you're visiting like I am, welcome. We're glad that you're here. I know the members of this congregation are glad to have you here tonight. Now, you can't expect visitors to do the work of the church, can you? No, they're just still trying to figure out how to get plugged in in the first place. And so you've got visitors over here, they're on the far edge. And then of course in the center of the church, this is true in every congregation, you have a core group of people, don't you? These are the people who are very devoted to the Lord. And you can tell that because they are very devoted to the Lord's people and to the Lord's work. They are at, they are at every single service. They do the giving. These are the people who, when somebody dies, they're over there to that family and they're taking food and they're comforting them. These are the folks who teach Bible classes regularly. These are the folks who are very constant in their service all of the time, doing things for the Lord and doing things for the Lord's people. But in between that core and the people, the visitors who are out here on the edge and on the fringe, there's another group of people, isn't there? They're not visitors out here, no. No. No, they're members. They identify. Their picture and their name is in the church directory. But what about their level of participation? Are they doing things at the level that these folks here on the core are doing? Do they teach the Bible classes? No, they do not. In fact, many times, they don't even show up for Bible class. They rarely darken the doors of the church building on a Wednesday night. And even if they do happen to show up, they usually do nothing more than just warm the pew for a few minutes, They don't volunteer to maybe sign up and help clean the church building once a month or however often that's done. They don't stick around and greet visitors and make them feel welcome and try to draw them into the group. They don't check on the people who are on the sick list. They're not active in evangelism and sharing the gospel with their neighbors and friends. No, they just show up on some random Sunday mornings. But beyond that, they're just just not really all that involved. They are good people but you're just not doing anything. Do you see the comparison to Numbers chapter 32 now? Those people in Numbers 32 said, you know what, I know that the Lord has given you a great and mighty work to do, but but we just really don't want to do that. We're just going to stay right here. And in the same way today, the Lord has given His church a great and mighty work to do. And some people... Some people in that core, they are trying hard to do that work, the work of evangelism, the work of edification. But some people within the Lord's church, maybe even some of you are not fully participating in that work. You are apathetic. You are on the other side of the Jordan. And while God's people are going forward, trying to do God's work, hard work, you are not You are not fully involved in the life of this church. If that describes you this evening, then today is moving day. This evening I want to help some folks, if I'm describing you tonight, I want to help you to move from the other side of the Jordan to come on over and to get fully involved in the work and in the life of this local congregation. I realize that we've got visitors here from other congregations. You need to think about the context of this lesson in the congregation that you normally worship with. That's how I'm going to be thinking about these things this evening. And when I talk about the idea of being fully involved, I mean being here at every single service. I mean participating heartily in the worship of Almighty God. I mean looking around and finding jobs that you can do, getting plugged in in some way, contributing in some way. I'm talking about getting up off the bench and taking an active part in the life of this church so that it does not become a dead church. In fact, what I'm really specifically talking about this evening is a change in attitude, a shift in attitude, a shift from this idea of ho hum church, yeah, I, you know, somebody else will get it done, to the idea and the attitude that says this is God's work. These are God's people. Count me in. I want to fully participate in the work of this local congregation. This evening, I'll just go ahead and tell you, I'm not going to be reinventing the wheel. In fact, I have really just distilled our thoughts down to just two ideas. Two ideas, two things that happen when good men and good women do nothing. And I hope that these truths, I've kind of been given carte blanche. I asked Kyle about this a few weeks ago. If I could have just kind of some carte blanche to just talk very forcefully and just kind of not mince words, let's just cut straight to the heart of the matter here. I hope this evening that as I do that, this will be presented in a way that you will find is being done in love and with the Spirit and with the desire for all of us to be more diligent in our efforts in the kingdom. There is much to do. There's work on every hand. The idea this evening, that the idea that good men do nothing, I want to tell you first of all that when good men do nothing, the first thing that happens is is it reveals a lack of commitment to the Lord. You know, whenever you talk about that word commitment today, it seems as if you're talking about a concept that is very slowly going the way of the buffalo. People today just aren't very big into the idea of commitment, being committed to anything. We see evidence of that probably most noticeably in the staggering divorce rates in our country. People have zero commitment these days to their marriage vows. We see that as well in politics. We're seeing that a lot right now in the political landscape. Voters and sometimes even elected officials themselves, they'll change their affiliations. They don't seem to show any strong commitment to one p- political uh, ideology or party, just kind of waffle back and forth. We see that as well in business and in commerce, a lack of commitment. Where maybe, for example, if, if I don't like the service that my cell phone uh, carrier provides, well, well, I can just ditch them. Or maybe if I find a cheaper rate somewhere else, even though maybe I've been with this company for 10 or 15 years, doesn't matter, I'm done with them, I'm going over here to the competitor. I've got no sense of allegiance or a commitment to those folks. And you know what, in many ways I believe we've just come, just kind of become a, a very flaky society. And my biggest fear is not that we've become a flaky society. My biggest fear, though, is that that mindset has slowly crept into the Lord's people. And as a result, we've got some folks who are just pretty flaky in their Christianity. And I want to just say without any hesitation at all that the Lord Jesus Christ has no patience whatsoever for that kind of on again, off again, I'm hot, then I'm called, I'm on, then I'm off sort of Christianity. Turning your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 6. Let's just stitch together some really cornerstone passages. In Matthew chapter 6 and in verse 33, you want to talk about being in a spiritual relationship with the Lord? You want to talk about going to heaven? Then take a look at what Jesus says that's going to require. Matthew 6 verse 33, Jesus says there, but seek first, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Now, I understand very clearly that, that expression, kingdom of God, I understand that that does not limit itself just to the worship services or just to the local activities of the local church. I realize that. But there's not any question at all that that is part of the kingdom of God, isn't it? Now, can I honestly say that I am seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness whenever I rarely seek after the welfare of my brothers and sisters in Christ? When I rarely seek after the welfare of the work that God has given His church to do? Can I really say that I'm seeking first the kingdom? How about in Luke 14? Consider this, in Luke 14, Luke's the place where Jesus has all these great and pointed uh, discipleship sayings. In Luke 14 and in verse 33... Jesus says there, Luke 14, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Do we honestly think that we can fool Jesus into believing that we are fully committed disciples when we can't even renounce the couch on Sunday afternoon and come back for evening worship? Do we really think we're fooling Jesus there? Do we imagine that Jesus, as He sees us there laying on the couch on Sunday afternoon, and Jesus says, you know what? Right there, that guy, that guy is a really fully committed disciple. There's a guy who will renounce anything for me. Of course not. What about in Galatians 2? In Galatians chapter 2, looking at some words of Jesus, how about we look at the words of just a Christian? Look at a fellow brother in Christ. What does he say about these things? In Galatians 2 and in verse 20, I want you to just notice the strength of Paul's language here. In Galatians 2 and in verse 20, Paul says here, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. What part of that passage sounds like this is just an occasional hobby to Paul? Paul says crucified with Christ. Christ lives in me. That does not sound like the words of a guy who's just warming a pew, does it to you? How about in Ephesians 5? One more passage in this connection. In Ephesians 5. The church relationship here in Ephesians 5 is actually compared to the marriage relationship. Notice what Paul writes here through the pen of inspiration. Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands... Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Think about that. Jesus sacrificed himself for the church. I'm asking you this evening, what sacrifices have you made for the church? Can we really say that we are Christ-like? That we are following in the footsteps of Jesus? If we have done little to nothing for the bride of Christ? Listen up, being a follower of Jesus Christ, it is not a part-time job. There's nothing halfway about serving the Lord. And I want you to know, the Bible makes no apologies for that at all. Jesus expects of us that He will be the center of our existence. He will be at the center of all that we are, of all that we say, of all that we do. Everything that we are will revolve around our commitment to the Lord. Where then does that put the church relationship? Where then on the scale of things of importance, where does that put things like like worship? Where does that put things like serving our brothers and sisters? All of those things are marked off as being a pretty high priority in life. You see, the problem for many folks is not, where were you at on Wednesday night, brother? The problem for many folks is, where is your heart all the time? That's the issue. Look at Matthew 22 with me. In Matthew chapter 22, I want you to just cue this passage up. And as you turn to Matthew chapter 22, I want you to be thinking about your favorite earthly relationship. What's your favorite earthly relationship with another person on planet earth? What's that favorite relationship? For some of you, that might be your relationship with your kids or your grandkids. Maybe it's your relationship with a best friend. Maybe it's your relationship with your spouse. Maybe that's your favorite relationship. Whatever that is right now. I hope you've got somebody that you're thinking of. I want you to think about your level of participation in that relationship and what does that call for. How much time, how much effort, maybe even how much money do you put into that relationship. Those of you that are parents and those of you that are grandparents, you're thinking right now, man, Josh, if you only knew what I put into that relationship driving my kids to practices and ball games all the time, helping them with homework, buying school clothes and all the expense with that, changing dirty diapers. I know about that a little bit. Maybe waiting up late when our kids get older, waiting up late to see that they get home safely. It's just a never-ending cycle of doing for that person that we love so much. Relationships call for a lot, don't they? It takes a great deal of commitment to make those relationships work and thrive. Now, I want you to think about that favorite relationship, and I want you to now honestly evaluate. Here's the tough question for yourself. Ask yourself, if you participated in that relationship at the same level that you participate in this local congregation, how strong would that relationship be? Some of you right now are thinking, hmm, I only show up to like half of the services here. I guess if I only showed up for half of my kids' ball games, I guess that wouldn't make me father of the year. Or some of you are maybe thinking, you know what? I don't ever offer to help clean up the building or tidy up around the church building. And Well, my wife, she probably wouldn't like that at all if I never offered to tidy up or help clean up around the house. In fact, what some of you maybe are realizing right now is that if you participated in that family relationship the same way that you participated in your spiritual family, that it would be a very, very weak relationship. And so somebody would maybe ask, Well, Josh, what is it that makes for a strong relationship? Well, let me answer that question this way. Why do we pitch a million baseballs to Junior over and over and over for hours on end that he swings at and swings at and never even hits a single one? Why do we do that? Why do we run behind a bicycle mile after mile after mile until a kid finally gets their balance to be able to ride that bike on their own? Why do we invest all that time? Or, you know, why do we invest thousands of dollars to pay for braces or to pay for piano lessons or to pay for college tuition? Why do we do all that stuff? I'll tell you why. Because we love our kids. Or those of you that are married, think about this. Why do we, why do we mow the yard? Or in my case, why do you pay somebody to mow the yard? Why, why, why do we slave over a hot stove and have somebody you know, prepare that favorite meal for our husband? Why do we put up with crazy in-laws? Why do we listen to that daily speech about how awful and what a drag work was today? Why do we do all that? I'll tell you why. Because we love our spouse. It is all about love. That is what motivates us. Love is the driving force behind every strong relationship. Love does. Love acts. Maybe the best words that I could use this evening is to say that love shows up. You can't tell your kids, "Oh, honey, I, I I love you a lot, boy. I just really love you a whole bunch." But you know what? Monday night football's on, so I'm not going to be able to make it to your recital this evening. That's just way more important. That doesn't work, does it? True love shows up. Love is dependable. I am going to be there. You can count on me. When the curtain comes up for your recital, I'm going to be sitting on the front row dead sitter. You can bank on me. I'm going to be right there. I'm not going to give you a bunch of lame excuses about how, oh, I was just so tired and I couldn't make it there. I'm not going to say stuff like, oh, I was just tied up doing a bunch of other stuff and that's why I couldn't make it. No, you can depend on me to be there. That's how much I love you. And that is exactly how love operates, isn't it? And instead of, thinking about this, instead of just doing the bare minimum, real love always strives for maximums, doesn't it? That I want to do as much for you as I possibly can to show you how much I love you. Love just overflows with generosity in many ways as possible, as many ways as possible. We want to show that person that I care about you. And I want you to see how much I care about you. I'm not trying to do the very least that I can to get by with. I want to do all that I can and even more to demonstrate to you just how much I love you. You matter to me. Now did you notice we haven't read that verse yet? How about now? Matthew 22 verse 36. The Bible says, Matthew 22 verse 36 that one of them, a lawyer, well, verse 35, one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. I'm asking you this evening, brother. I'm asking you this evening, sister. Do... You love the Lord. Love is the hallmark, the cornerstone of real, genuine relationships. I'm asking you, do you have a real, committed relationship to the Lord? Or are you just apathetically, half-heartedly letting that die? I need you to understand that when I talk about a committed relationship to Jesus Christ, I'm not talking about adding a bunch of religious chores to your to-do list. That's not what I'm asking. What I'm talking about this evening is I'm talking about your heart. I'm talking about giving the Lord your heart, giving Him your everything, giving Him first place. Because when we do that, When we do that, we won't sit on the sidelines. We won't be waiting on the other side of the Jordan doing nothing. Instead, we will be motivated. We will be compelled. We will be excited to get busy working for the Lord. And we're doing that work for the Lord not because we're trying to somehow earn our salvation or prove ourselves to God. No, we're doing that for the Lord because we love Him. We love Him so much for what He has done for us. I love God. That, that is what will fix this problem of apathy. Do I love the Lord? Am I fully committed to Him? Now, having said some things to get us to think about our commitment to the Lord, let me maybe get even more specific. Let me say to you secondly that when good men and good women do nothing, it demonstrates a lack of consideration for our brothers and sisters. If you were to go back to Numbers 32 where we started, that is actually the vantage point that Moses argues from. In verse 6, Moses asked the people, he says, Hey, you guys just going to sit here while your brothers go to war? Just going to let them do all of the sacrificing? Let them do all of the fighting while you stay over here on this side? Just kind of living it up? He then asked, furthermore in verse 7, Hey, did you not give any consideration to the fact That what you are doing right now, it just might discourage your brothers and sisters? That your inactivity, your unwillingness to serve and to stand beside them in battle, that it just might crush their spirits? Did you not think about that? In fact, in the next several verses, Moses then compares the Reubenites and the Gadites to those ten spies. Do you remember the ten faithless spies who came back with an evil report about the land of Canaan some forty years previously? Do you remember how that discouraged, it disheartened the entire nation of people? And as a result, God's anger was kindled against all of them? Look at verse 14. Numbers 32, verse 14. Moses says, Behold, You have risen in your father's place. You're following right in their footsteps, those ten faithless spies, a brood of sinful men, to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will again abandon them in the wilderness, and you, you will destroy all this people. Moses says, you Reubenites, you Gadites, if you want to be selfish, and all you're thinking about is yourself here, then you better be prepared to face this consequence. The consequence that if God abandons this people, it's going to be on your heads. And I wonder, I wonder what will become of Christians today who manifest that same spirit of selfishness. Only thinking about myself and in the process hinder the Lord's work because I am discouraging my brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, I talk about the idea of the spirit of selfishness. I am not talking about folks. Sometimes maybe we would get an image of our mind of some kind of diabolical person who's just always trying to cook up some mischievous scheme and trying to just absolutely thwart the Lord's work. I don't think there are people like that here. No, what I'm talking about is I'm just talking about folks who are not considerate of their brothers and sisters. They just don't think very much about their brothers and sisters who are trying and laboring so hard to carry out the work of the Lord. I'm talking about folks who say things like, you know, I I didn't get anything out of that lesson today. Or you know what, Brother Logan, he didn't lead my favorite song tonight. Or you know, why can't they schedule that meeting or why can't they schedule that get-together to be more convenient for me and my schedule. Now, those are very vocal examples of this idea, but what about some of the more subtle ways in which that is manifested? What about the idea that folks that are, that are just chronically tardy for the assemblies of God's people, and I'm not talking about they're tardy because you know, they're just getting out of work and they're just making it here in the nick of time. I'm talking about folks who are just tardy all the time for no reason whatsoever. I'm talking about the folks who maybe are just absent from the assemblies quite regularly, altogether, without even so much as saying, hey, I'm going to be out of town this week. Could you guys be praying for my safe travels? I'm talking about folks who start thinking in those terms. Or what about, what about the spectator mentality? I am convinced folks who are spectators they have no consideration for their brothers and sisters. The folks who are always saying, well, I'll just kind of sit here. I'll show up, but I'm just going to kind of sit here with my arms folded, and I'm going to kind of just watch and observe the show. And don't you dare ask me to do anything or be involved in any sort of way. And you know what? If the show is not to my liking, you can bet your bottom dollar, I'm going to be the first person to speak up about that. I'm going to be the first person to complain and argue and bicker about how awful it was. Where did we get? Where did we get this idea? That church is set up to sustain me. It's not about me. It's not about you. That Whenever I I decide I want me some religion, you know what? They better have the doors up and they better be ready to give me some of that religion down there at that church. I want to come get me some. You know, I put my membership in down there and that means that I am entitled to some perks and some privileges and some benefits of being a member. And that means that whenever I want to worship, well, you know what? The building better be opened up. The pews better be filled. We better have a comfortable temperature set here in the meeting house. There better be good singing, and the preaching better not be too long, Kyle. When I'm in the hospital, I want folks to come and visit me. If I'm in trouble, I want people to pray for me. I want people to be doing for me. I paid my dues on Sunday morning when they passed that collection plate around, so I want a little bit of return on my investment. Don't tell me Christians don't think that way. I know Christians who think that way. Where in the world can we possibly get that idea from the Bible? We can't get it from the Bible. That is not the church in any shape or form or fashion whatsoever. Look at 1 Corinthians 12 with me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, excuse me, we are told here that the church is a body. And it is made up of many interworking parts. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 14, Paul writes here, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, Well, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as He chose. There's a couple of things in particular that this passage helps us to understand. Number one, it helps us to understand we're all in this together. It's not you and me. No, it's us. It's we. We. The inclusive kind of language. All of us together comprise the body of Jesus Christ, which means number two that when one member does or does not do what they're supposed to do, that ends up affecting the whole body. For example, what if I decide? What if I decide that I'm going to go to the movies, but my ears say, "Ah, oh, movies? No, I don't care about movies." Movies are really for the eyes. There's all those visual things, explosions and all kinds of neat things up there on the screen, bright colors and all that kinds of stuff. You know, ears, we don't really get anything out of it. In fact, it's just, just too noisy in there. I don't want to go to the movies. Let me ask you, is that going to work? That isn't going to work at all. I need my eyes and I need my ears in order to be functioning properly. I need the whole body. Why is it then that in the body of Christ, there are members who think that they can say, well, you know what, if that particular thing doesn't ring my bell, if that particular thing that maybe is on the table that we're going to do, if that doesn't really spark my interest, if that doesn't tickle my fancy, and you know, I'm just really interested in that, then you know what, I'm not going to take part in that. When that happens, the whole body is affected. The whole body is slowed down. And please don't say, Oh, come on, Josh. You saying if one member doesn't participate, how in the world does that slow down the whole body if just one person doesn't participate? Okay, let me ask you this. How would you like it to do without just one, I don't know, one foot? How would you like that? Do you think you could function and still get around and still still do things smoothly and at a really high level? with one less foot? Of course not. We know that would slow us down. All it takes is just for one member to be missing or to be inactive in some way and as a result, the whole body will be impaired. Which is why I'm asking you right now. Are you, are you doing your part or are you just dragging the rest of us down to your level impairing the whole key for all of us the key for all of us is to be finding ways to build up the body i need to be finding the role that best maximizes my talents and my abilities and my gifts so that i can then put them to use in the cause of jesus christ look in ephesians 4 please in ephesians 4 paul actually tells us that this is one of the reasons that god has made us all just so different and so diverse in ephesians 4 i'm reading here in verse 11 In Ephesians 4 and verse 11, the Lord gave the church apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why do we have all of these differing parts in the body of Christ? I'll tell you why. Paul tells us why. Because when you put them all together, when the Lord pieces them all together, and when they are all working together, great things happen. Great things happen to us individually as individual Christians, and also great things happen collectively. And the only way that that is going to happen is if I stop thinking about me all the time and I start having some consideration for my brothers and my sisters in Christ. In Hebrews chapter 10, please. In Hebrews chapter 10, everybody in this room is familiar with Hebrews 10.25. We all know what Hebrews 10.25 says. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Everybody knows about that verse. Sometimes I'm afraid we don't understand why that verse and why that command is given. The reason is found in the previous verse. In Hebrews 10, look at verse 24. In Hebrews 10 and in verse 24, the Hebrew writer says there, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works. Underline maybe in your Bible that word, consider. Christians are to consider one another. As I think about my place in this local congregation or wherever it is that you normally worship, I need to be considering how to stir up my brothers and my sisters to love and to good works. What does that maybe mean practically speaking? Well, I'll give you a few examples of that. That would mean, for example, when I get home on Wednesday afternoon and I've worked really hard and I'm really tired and my body is saying, boy, the Lazy Boy recliner looks really good. It looks so comfy. I tell you, it's getting close to time for Bible study, I think I'm going to park right there in the lazy boy. Instead, when I have consideration for my brethren, my mind, my heart is going to say, no, no, I'm not getting in the lazy boy. Brother Bible class teacher, I know has probably studied very hard to prepare his lesson for the evening. He's prepared for Bible class night, and I'm going to go, if for no other reason than to encourage him. Or maybe that would mean as well, that maybe as I'm on my way home from work and I maybe just happen to have a passing thought about sister chronically sick. always have folks in the congregation who always have a number of health difficulties. As I'm thinking about her, what I'm going to do as I'm having consideration from my brethren is I'm going to maybe drive completely out of my way to just stop by and visit that sister. Let her, know, let her know that I was thinking about her. See if there's any of her needs that I can tend to in some way. See if I can brighten her day. That's what considering our brethren does or maybe whenever the announcement is made that we're going to meet down here at the church building on, on Saturday afternoon in preparation maybe for a gospel meeting, and we're all going to get a bunch of flyers and a bunch of invitations, and we're just going to blitz the neighborhood, just hand out invitations, inviting folks to come to the gospel meeting. When I have consideration for my brethren, I'm not going to just, well, I'll just recuse myself from that, and I'll let the same three or four people who always do that stuff, let them get it done. no when I have consideration from my brethren, I'm going to be there. I'm going to to volunteer for those kinds of things. I'm going to help to get the work done. I'm going to join in that work. I'm going to be a part of this team. Really, the examples are endless. I could just do this all night long. But what I want you to understand is that there will never, there will never be a time where you participate in the work of the local church And at the end of all of that, you're going to think to yourself, Man, I should have just stayed home tonight and watched television. Oh, that was just a big bust that I went to church tonight. You're never going to think that. If you come and you labor alongside, shoulder to shoulder with the people of God, if you get in there and you immerse yourself fully in the work of the Lord, you will always be glad that you did. You'll never go away from that thinking, That was a big waste of time. But you know what? You know what? Even if, even if you come to the worship assembly and the service is way off, Brother Logan's had a bad day and the singing just really wasn't as good as it normally is. Maybe the sermon, Kyle, he wasn't having a good day and the sermon was just really terrible. Maybe the Bible class just got all bogged down. Or maybe you did come for that Saturday invitation thing and maybe you went around from door to door and people just slammed the door in your face every time. Even if that does happen, you can still leave here with the knowledge that I served others. Just by my presence alone, I showed some consideration for my spiritual family. I wasn't there for me. Not, I wasn't there for be all about self-centered and it all about me getting something. I was there for them. My brothers and my sisters needed me today and I showed up. I got involved. I got involved not to see what I could get out of that, but to see what I could give. And by participating in that work, I was an encouragement to them, not a discouragement to them. Now, if you were to go back to Numbers chapter 32, maybe you are curious as to what ends up happening with Moses and as he's arguing there with the people of Gad and the people of Reuben. You read the rest of that story there, what you will see is that after Moses admonishes them very fiercely, the people of Gad and the people of Reuben, they say, we are sorry. We are sorry. We did not mean to discourage the people of God. We will go. We will carry out our duty and our obligations. Those people, they repented. And they ended up joining their brothers and sisters in carrying out the Lord's important work. And you know what? That's the kind of happy ending it kind of makes us feel good. I'm glad to see that they ended up doing that. It's the kind of happy ending that really gives us a little bit of hope. But maybe more importantly, maybe it forces us, hopefully it does force us, to examine our own lives. To see if I need to do some repenting like they did. To see if I need to be making some changes. Because it may be that after some self, some very careful self-examination, maybe you're realizing this evening that you are one of those good men or good women that's been doing nothing. Now you may not have intentionally been doing that. You may not have very consciously and deliberately discouraged the people of God, but you need to know You need to know that when you stand on the other side of the Jordan, you hurt us. You do. You hurt those who are trying so hard to do the work of God in this place. And what we need so desperately is for you to cross over. We need you to put an end to all the excuses. We're not interested in the excuses. We need you to join us. Join with the Lord as we march toward the promised land. Now as we get ready to sing the invitation song, grab your songbooks and be turned to the song that's been selected. I want you to be asking yourself right now, what kind of Christian am I? Am I a faithful servant? Am I a dependable, trustworthy Christian? Someone that can be counted on? Someone who is giving my all to serve the King of Kings and to serve my brothers and sisters? Or am I one of those Christians who's never really amounted to much because I chose to sit on the sidelines and do nothing? Get up. Cross over. Recommit yourself tonight to the important work that God has entrusted you and entrusted me to do. Devote yourself fully to the Lord once again. If we can assist you this evening in making your life right with God, if we can pray with you and encourage you, stimulate you, exhort you to love and to good works, brother or sister, it's a wonderful opportunity. Take advantage of it. You are in a building full, I believe, of kindred spirits, people who are trying to do what's right, people who are trying to go to heaven. Let's help each other. Let's encourage one another. Let's go to the promised land. If there's anybody who needs to respond to the invitation of Jesus Christ, make your way down front while we stand and while we sing.